In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. And these first three days of Lent, Ash Wednesday and the Thursday and Friday that follow, we are told by our Lord of the three great arms we may take up in the spiritual warfare. On Ash Wednesday, we hear of fasting. And tomorrow, we will hear of almsgiving. In both those cases, we hear from our Lord preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We might expect then that today's gospel would follow suit, and we would hear our Lord speaking of prayer as he does in the Sermon on the Mount. For indeed, he refers to these three things in that sermon as recorded by St. Matthew. And Holy Mother Church has chosen to do somewhat differently today. She records for us rather what our Lord does once he descends from the mount in chapter 8 of St. Matthew. That is because there are some other things which the Church wishes to teach us today. As we begin our Lenten pilgrimage and our program of daily sermons, I would like to remind you of an important teaching of the Church and expound on it in greater detail, which is why I can already warn you that today's sermon will be slightly longer than some of the other daily sermons. Nevertheless, you all came here this evening for that purpose, and I'm sure you don't mind lending your, your ears for a short time. We should be reminded then today of the four senses of Scripture, for we will be hearing from both testaments of the Bible every day now throughout our Lenten journey. The Fathers of the Church teach us that there are four senses of Scripture. In fact, a twofold division. There is the literal sense, and then three spiritual senses. The literal sense of Scripture relates an event in history or makes a simple statement of fact. <clears throat> the spiritual sense teaches us what in these words, what they have to say to us about how we should believe, how we should act, or where we are headed. The first is the allegorical sense. And considering the allegorical sense, as Catholics, we can simply ask the question, what does this passage mean for the Church? When considering the moral sense, we ask, what does this passage mean for each individual? And finally, for the anagogical sense, that is the sense that tends upward, what does this passage mean for eternity? 
St. Thomas Aquinas gives us a very important reminder regarding the spiritual sense of Scripture. It is not a secret code, as though only the very erudite or some group of initiated persons can find out what Scripture really means. St. Thomas teaches clearly that nothing necessary for faith is contained under the spiritual sense that is not openly conveyed through the literal sense elsewhere in Scripture. I will give you an example so you can understand what he is saying here. For instance, the book of Genesis recounts for us the history of the patriarchs and the sacrifice of Isaac by his father Abraham. This is a historical fact upon which depends the very existence of the Hebrew people. It is included, though, among the prophecies of Holy Saturday because all the details of this historical account prefigure the passion of our Savior Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, we don't have to read about Isaac to know that Jesus Christ suffered and died for us. We find that truth clearly recounted in the Gospels. The spiritual sense of Genesis is here a great aid to our faith, our faith in the truth of the Gospel. It is a powerful consolation for us to know that what was taught plainly by our Lord 2,000 years ago was already expressed in a mysterious way thousands of years before that. And St. Paul says, that which was written in former times was written for our instruction, that through steadfastness and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is the normal relationship between the Old and New Testaments. St. Augustine says, novum in vetere latet, vetus in novo patet. The new lies hid in the old, the old becomes clear in the new. That is why all these Masses in Lent begin with a lesson from the Old Testament followed by a reading from the Gospel. And that is what, it's, what is signified at every Mass by the subdeacon or altar server taking the Missal from one side of the altar and moving it to the other or the epistolary book at Solemn Mass. First, the book is found on the epistle side of the altar, facing east. As we pray to God, like the just men of the old law, for the revelation of his truth. Then we transition from the Old to the New Testament, and the book faces north. For the truth has now been fully revealed in Christ, and must be proclaimed to the world of unbelievers. What should we be looking for throughout these 40 days in trying to apply the four senses of Scripture to these masses of Lent? First of all, the literal sense. The literal sense will loom ever larger as we approach Holy Week until finally it will dominate all our thoughts 
until we follow our Lord's words and deeds moment by moment in fulfillment of the prophets. From now until Passion Sunday, we find ourselves more generally during the three-year period of our Lord's public ministry, learning from him alongside his first listeners as he teaches from the Mount in Galilee and the Temple. Now for the spiritual senses. The overriding allegory, which we are to find throughout these days of Lent, is that of the Old Covenant being superseded by the New, which is the Church of Christ. The law of bondage, which could never justify man, has come to an end. And the new law of Christ is proclaimed, not just to one nation, but to all peoples, that all may rejoice in the liberty of the children of God. This allegorical sense usually blends with the anagogical. For the church that fights here below will triumph in heaven. This is a new and everlasting covenant whose promises find their fulfillment not in earthly prosperity, but in eternal life. The moral sense we find throughout these 40 days may be summed up thus the sinner, and the sacraments. Whether we are leaving the unbelieving world to embrace the faith for the first time or are returning to grace after sin, we now have access to grace in the new covenant through Christ and the visible signs of grace he has instituted. And so we finally arrive at the explanation of the verse of Scripture which I read at the beginning of the sermon, taken from today's lesson of the Old Testament. Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. Hezekiah was king of Judah. He was the descendant of David and the direct ancestor of our Lord. He was the son of Achaz, to whom the prophecy of the virgin birth was announced. The canticle which Hezekiah sings and which is recorded in this chapter of Isaiah will, like the Psalms of David, be seen as prefiguring the voice of our Savior himself. I said, in the middle of my days, I will go down to the gates of hell. And there is an obvious moral lesson to be drawn from the life of Hezekiah just as his humble prayer was heard by God and his impending death averted, so will God hear our humble prayers and avert our afflictions. But we are meant to find more instruction here. For we find this mysterious detail in the account. Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall. This man in his sickness was barred from the outside by a wall. The prophet Isaiah is there as an intermediary between him and the Lord. In today's gospel, there is a servant 
and was gravely ill and confined to a house. His intercessor before the Lord is not a Hebrew prophet, but his master, a pagan centurion. But he too, the centurion, must face toward a wall to pray, for he is barred from entering God's covenant with the Hebrews. Nor does he presume that the living God will ever pass through the wall of his house to heal his servant. And so he makes his humble prayer. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter unto my roof, but only say the word, and my servant shall be healed. And his prayer is heard. What is more, our Lord announces that the wall that has hitherto barred the Gentiles from the true religion will be torn down. Amen, I say to you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. And I tell you that many will come from the east and from the west and will feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The moral sense of this passage, based on what I have told you, I hope you can arrive easily at the answer. There is a wall barring each one of us from being healed by Christ. Our sins, original sin for the catechumen, actual sins for the rest of us. In today's Old Testament passage, it is a king who is sick, and the gospel, a servant. What is signified here morally? Our soul. Our soul, which should be reigning as king over the body and its appetites, has been reduced to servitude by the cruel reign of sin. Whom can our soul in its state of mortal illness claim as a mediator before God? Only our unclean lips. Let our lips then be our own accuser. Let us come to our Lord and judge in the tribunal of mercy and receive the healing words of absolution, and then receive him, body, blood, soul, and divinity, in holy communion. Almighty God, cleanse my heart and my lips, as thou didst cleanse with a burning coal the lips of the prophet Isaiah, and grant that I may utter today with a humble and contrite heart the words I find announced in my holy gospel, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Amen.